Why don't we take a moment uh, to pray together as we enter God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you how you uh, continue to shape us and form us and work within us, how your word is active and alive, and how your word continues uh, to complete its purposes that you've set forth for it. And so we pray for this time that you would use this time as well uh, to shape us and form us more into the image of Christ. Amen. A little something different up here this week, and we'll get to that a little bit later. If you don't know what it is, it's a yoke. We're going to be ending our series in Nehemiah today. Uh, We're in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. So far, we've witnessed how Nehemiah was a person of prayer, that the first thing he did when he heard of the difficulty and the state of Jerusalem with its walls uh, tore down, the gates burned with fire, is that he prayed. And then we saw how that, that prayer ended up turning into action and how he asked his, the, the king, uh, who he was uh, working underneath of, he asked the king if, if he could leave and, and go take care of his, his ancestors' hometown. And not only did he ask if he could leave, but he would ask if the king would provide all the, the needed materials to, to rebuild the walls and the gates and the needed materials to build Nehemiah a house for the time that he'd be there. We saw how Nehemiah weathered wave after wave of opposition uh, from Tobiah and others as as they tried to stop the building of the walls. We saw how the, the people gathered and heard God's word and confessed their sin to God, how they rededicated themselves to the Lord, recommitting to the covenant, and how they dedicated the walls. And now we're at the final chapter, and it would be great if the story would just end and they lived happily, happily forever and ever, or whatever it is. Happily forever after. I don't read those stories, apparently. But what we find is that there really isn't a happy ending. Uh, What we find is that the people fail. It's just so often that the people in the Old Testament, they fail. And they slip back into their old habits. You know, I don't think any one of us, does anyone like to be set up for failure? You know, I don't think anybody else is going to raise their hand for that. It, you, we, we don't like to fail. You know, it's one thing for us to set a goal or a purpose or something like that that's going to stretch you, that's going to cause you to have to work hard in a certain area. But it's another thing to set up a goal or, or make a promise that from its very outset you know is going to be a failure. I watched a documentary recently uh, called 14 Peaks. Uh, it, it follows uh, this in, 19, uh, yeah, in 2019 uh, Nims Persia. He's a Nepali mountaineer. And he desired to set forth a goal to climb and summit all of the mountains that are 8,000 meters and higher. So that's 26,000 feet, uh, 26,260 feet for the metrically challenged like myself. 
So it recounts this journey as he's going to summit these 14 different peaks. And, and the reality is that other people have summited the 14 different peaks. But Nims had a goal in mind that was a little bit different. He said he was going to do it all in seven months. 14 peaks, over 26,000 feet in seven months. Typically, people set out a goal like, I'm going to do one this year. And he said he was going to do all of them in just over a half a year. And he did it. This is him on the top of uh, K2, uh, one of the, the 8,000-meter peaks. He did it. He, he did every single one of them, the ones that, that straddled borders, the ones that were in uh, specific countries all along this, this mountain range in six months and six days, or, if, or 190 days. Now, this year, there's a Norwegian climber, Kristen uh, Harla. Um, so far, she has summited 11 of the 14 peaks, and she did that, uh, I think she had done that in 105 days. So as of August 11, she had summited 11 of the 14 peaks in 105 days, and then she went home to rest. So now she's at day 129. She has, uh, what is it, uh, 60 or so days to summit three more peaks and beat Nim's record. The interesting thing about Carla and, and Nim's is that, is that they said if, if they would have tried to do this on their own, they would fail. If they said they were going to solo summit all of these 8,000-meter peaks on their own, they would fail. The goal itself would cause it to be a failure. But instead, they always had a team. So here's part of uh, Nim's team. I think this is his team that went up the mountain K2. Uh, they weren't pictured in that one picture, were they, right? But there's these people, and I think there was about four of them that followed him and did most of uh, the summits with him. But it's not something that we see in the record book, right? In Nehemiah 13, what happens is the, the people lose a member of their team. The people lose a member of their team and they are somehow disoriented from the goal. They are somehow not kept on track to what they're supposed to be doing and, and they go off the rails just as if if Nims or Carla lost several members of their team, they likely wouldn't have been able to hit their goal. So let's go to Nehemiah 13. We're going to read verses 4 through 13 this morning. If you grab one of those black Bibles, it's page 394. So it says, Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our, Lord, of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles. And also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. 
But while all of this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Bediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for the distributing of the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. We're going to end there. Actually, no, we're not. We're going to go to 50. We're going to keep going. Sorry. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, and figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish of all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Nehemiah spent 12 years years in Jerusalem before he, before he headed back to his position as cupbearer to the king. He spent 12 long years along with the people, rebuilding, reorienting their lives towards God, and it seems like just after he leaves and heads back to the king the people begin to fall apart again. Though the people had had committed their lives to follow God, they said the words that they would follow God and that they would not live in the ways that they had before, they were unable to keep that promise. They said the words of a promise, but they weren't able to keep that promise to God or even themselves. After Nehemiah left, it was like he was the one that put the goal before them. It was like he was the one that that said, this is the way we need to be going, and this is what we need to be doing. This This is how we stay on track. 
now he's gone. And maybe we have those people in our life, those wonderful people that God gives to us that help us keep our life on track or, or help us remember some goals that we had in mind so that, that we can, can keep on progressing towards that. Those people that, that uh, help, you, help keep the meeting on track because your mind wanders in so many different directions. Without them in their life, you know, the reality is what we would find is that our hearts and minds begin to start wandering like, like the people here in Nehemiah 13. They begin to wander and start getting focused on other things that aren't maybe the most important thing. Let's see how the, the people's hearts have, have wandered here in this chapter. We, she, we see that somewhere back here. Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms in the house of God and that he was closely associated with this guy named Tobiah. And Tobiah was one of the main people that was in opposition to the work that Nehemiah was doing. He was one of the main people that was in opposition to, to the rebuilding of the walls. And, and here you see that a priest is, is highly associated with Tobiah. Later on, I think uh, somewhere in uh, verse 28, one of the sons of uh, Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, ended up being son-in-law to Sanballat. And now Sanballat was also one of the people who was in the opposition. So here you see priests, and we're not sure if Eliashib, the high priest, is different from the Eliashib that we're talking about here. There might be actually two people named the same thing. If you're from our church, you know that there's like seven people named Steve here. So that's possible, right? And so what you have is, is the priests are now becoming associated and tied together with people of other descent, people who are, are in direct opposition to the work that they had been, had been working towards. And, and what happens is Tobiah gets a room in the temple area. He gets a large room that was, it was, it used to be for the offerings, for the grain, for the, for the wine, for the olive oil that was given to the Levites and the musicians. But, well, later on we heard that they weren't taking care of them. So if you're not going to take care of those people, you don't need that room anyway. And, and Tobiah came in and took over that room and really what they needed to do is have all the other priests look the other direction because Tobiah wasn't even supposed to enter the doors of the temple area he was an Ammonite and it was only Israelites that were supposed to be allowed in to this area as the people the priests as the priests hearts begin to wander, the, the purity of their religious system was at stake. And the reality is, what filled the hearts of the priests would now begin to fill the hearts of all the other people in Jerusalem. 
I think what we find with this passage and what we find with other passages in the Old Testament is that restless hearts wander until they're filled with the fullness of Christ. We keep going and we, we hear that Nehemiah comes back and he learns of all the evil and all the ways that, that the hearts have wandered, that the restless hearts have, have wandered away from the Lord. And he, and he begins having them, he said, actually he said he threw out all the articles that were Tobias. In my mind, I don't know, I, I remember watching a show where there was a disagreement between, I don't know if it was a husband or wife or whatnot, and then she was up there and he was down and she was just chucking all the stuff out the window. And it was going down on the, on the ground with no regard for what was happening to the stuff. And that's, that's kind of what I have in my mind pictured here is that Nehemiah is fed up. He knows that Tobiah's things and Tobiah shouldn't even be in here. And he, and he begins just chucking things out left and right to get it out of there as fast as possible with, with no regard for the stuff themselves. And then, then he asks the Levites to start purifying all these rooms, purifying those, but also purifying the rest of the rooms to to return them to their original purpose. Because when that purpose had been taken away, what we find out is that the Levites are not being cared for. It's the Levites who are supposed to be doing in, in, uh, the works of service of, of the temple and, and the musicians, and, and they're just being ignored. So they need to go back home to their own field to be able to provide food for their family and to pr- provide everything that was necessary to survive. People seeing needs, perhaps, and just looking the other way. Because restless hearts wander. And they, they continue to wander as we read about the, the Sabbath, how people were treading wine presses and bringing in grain and loading it on their donkeys. And they would bring all these things and they would allow other people too to bring things and and they would purchase them. And their mindset must have shifted. What was once supposed to be something that was restful, something that the Israelites hadn't experienced before, we remember the Israelites were once slaves and they needed to work every day of the week. But when God pulled them from Egypt, he said, no, you're not, you're not supposed to work all day every day. Instead, you, you must take time to rest and, and take time on the Sabbath to rest. It's a gift to you. It's not an obligation. It's a, it's a gift that you should have. And now it seems that the people of Judah are trampling over the gift. While their ancestors once were slaves and were forced to work on what we would know as the Sabbath, now they are willingly working on what we would know as the Sabbath. The restless hearts of the people are, are wandering to, to fill their lives with goods and wealth and to make 
the most, quote-unquote, of every day. Their restless hearts are willingly working themselves to the bone. What filled their heart filled their time. I think there are times where we experience that too. What, what fills our, our heart fills our time. That there's maybe these things that we have in, in the back of our mind that we would really love to do. And, and we say to ourselves, it's, it'll be easier when I have more time. Emily and I have this phrase, it won't always be this way. It was the phrase that got us through uh, being in seminary and living off a smaller income, right? It was the phrase that got us through the, the days when our twins were really small. I remember before our twins were born, I asked uh, someone at the seminary that had just had twins as kid number three and four uh, before us. I said, you got any advice? And he gave me some advice, but he says, don't worry, you won't remember that first year at all anyway. You know, it, it won't always be this way. It's the phrase that we tell ourselves. It's the phrase, I think, that maybe we all tell ourselves when our when our schedule gets so busy, it won't always be this way. I won't always be studying for the MCAT. You know, it won't always be this way. I won't be working every day from until you know till six thirty at night and just getting home for dinner. You know, it won't always be this way. Once I get this one project done, my schedule will clear out. It won't always be this way. You know, once the kids' soccer season is done, things will get a lot easier. Our time will open up. You know, the problem is there's always something that fills in that blank. When that project gets done, when the soccer season is over, whenever we we get that next thing done, there always seems to be something that's going to come up that's going to fill our time. What fills our heart fills our time. And the problem is, you're right, we only have a finite amount of time. I recognize I will likely not live to 200, right? I hope 100. That'd be great. But we don't know, right? We have only a specific amount of time that, that we're allotted and a specific amount of time that, that we get to use uh, and experience the rest, that we get to use our, our time and, and talent and energy for something that has lasting value. And there always is going to be that thing that comes up. And we see it in the people of Jerusalem. There's something that comes up that begins to take their time from a focus on the Lord. That's because our hearts are just naturally restless and, and desiring something more. When our hearts are restless, we, we fill them to the brim and try to take, make the most out of every opportunity. But then the problem happens that we begin to, to think about our self-worth just based on the things that we do. Our self-worth based, based on the things that 
we accomplish. And if we want to have some sense of self-worth, then we have to use every single moment, every single hour, every week. But the truth is, we don't need to fill up every single moment. We don't have to find our worth from the list of tasks that we got done. I think God, God saw how the law was this big burden on people. You could, you could say it was like a yoke. And, and they just couldn't handle it on their own. A yoke is, is used when you tie like two animals together, like, like two oxen or something. And they're going to be doing some big amount of work. And for the people of Israel, the law was on the other side. And it was like they wouldn't let them move. They were trying to, to move forward, and, and they just couldn't. And they were, they were stuck in this yoke of almost slavery, slavery to the law that, that wasn't going to give them life. And it was just continually dragging them down. Restless hearts wander until they are filled with the fullness of Christ. Because it was Jesus that took the yoke and he reinterpreted it. He said, my yoke is easy. Someone then would have said, well, that's stupid. A yoke is never easy. A yoke implies hard work. A yoke implies that there's, there's going to be some sweating happening and, and that you're going to be working your tail off. But he says, my yoke is easy and the burden is light. Reinterpreting this, instead of being yoked to the law, the, the law which, which, which was a heavy burden, instead now we're yoked to someone else. We're yoked to Christ. By the, by the power of the Spirit, God unites us with, with Jesus. And, and maybe that's why His yoke is easy and His burden is light, because He's the one that we're yoked to, and He's the one that's going to continually keep us on track, and he, He's the one that's going to pull us along when, when we don't have any energy left. His yoke is easy, and His burden is light. He's the one that, because of that yoke, our identity is, is no longer in that list of stuff that we do. Our identity is no longer defined by the pay scale of our job, the size of our home, the fancy vacations we go on. Our lives are not, not defined by our pristine yar yards or a new promotion or or anything that we do, that is not who we are. In the same way, we're not a sum of all of the bad things that we've ever done in our life. You know, that job that you quit at that one time, that hidden sin that you keep in your back pocket that you don't tell anybody about. None of those things are your defining characteristic either. Because of how we're, we were yoked to Christ through the power of the Spirit, 
our identity now becomes a child of God. Each of us united to the Spirit, recognizing that our worth is not based on all of those things. And, and until we recognize that and, and recognize Christ, restless hearts are going to wander until they're filled with the fullness of Christ. doesn't matter if you're tired and irritable after a 10-hour workday, you're a child of God. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, you're a child of God. It doesn't matter if you're a kid who reluctantly goes to school and really doesn't want to, you're a child of God. What we do is not who we are. It even happens to pastors. I heard a quote recently that said, you are not the sum of the last sermon you preached. I don't know if you remember the last sermon I preached, but I really fumbled on the word natophe. See, I still practice it a lot, and it's like, I'm not, I'm not uh, that's not the sum of who I am. Natophethites. That doesn't, that doesn't define who I am as a person. Even if you, you did it in front of everyone that's here, or even if, even if it was accessible online, you're, you're not a sum of the things that you have done. You're defined by the, the one you're yoked to. You're defined as a child of God, and that's the, the beauty of this morning, is that we can remember how we have been united with Christ. Every time we gather and, and we partake in communion or the Lord's Supper together, we, we recognize that the fullness of Christ that fills our hearts comes with a, a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light because it is the Spirit that is inside each of us empowering us for the day. It is Christ who who comes to us in some way as we drink of the cup and eat of the bread to, to fill us with the fullness of himself that we could continue to move forward. So we come today to the, they call it a feast, the feast of the Lord, and everyone who is baptized and believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior is invited to join with us. Jesus himself is actually the one who invites us to this meal. And we don't come as individuals that are yoked to the law, individuals that are separate from one another. No, we come as a, a community. You could say yoked together, united together by the way of Christ. We come as people that are in different stages and places in life with, with different experiences. We come as people perhaps with struggles going on right now. But the thing, that, the thing that's beautiful about this is, is that we come with those struggles and we, we hand them over and it's Jesus who comes and assures us, assures of his, of his grace assures us 
that, that we are not the sum of the things that we've done in our life, that we are forgiven. So I invite uh, the elders to come forward as we, we gather for communion. If the praise band would like to uh, come up as well, they're, they're welcome to. As we gather together, sometimes we repeat some of the same phrases. And, and the reason we repeat some of the same phrases is that we want to recognize that we're not just on our own somewhere, but we are a part of uh, a church of Christ that is worldwide, that has extended before our time, and that will extend beyond our time. And so would you say these words with me? Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so we give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus, before he went to the cross, he gave us a memorial of his sacrifice. That's what we're participating in today. There's this thing called the Last Supper. Perhaps you've seen a picture of it. It shows, actually, you can see one right up there, all the faces. The, the Last Supper, as they, they gathered at the table, it was Jesus that took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he, he took the cup of the new covenant he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's in 1 Corinthians that says, whenever we drink of this cup and wherever we eat of this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so would you, would you join with me? Oh, look at that. I even have. That's great. Uh, Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's what we're going to say together. Christ is risen, Christ has come, or Christ will come again. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you immensely for this this memorial of your sacrifice that you've given to us. Something that's physical, something that we can touch, but something that is more than just the sum of what it is. A symbol of your sacrifice, a symbol of your death, a symbol of your coming again. A symbol which causes our, our thoughts to rise to you. And so it's our prayer that you would send your spirit here in this place. That this bread and this cup may be the, the true body and blood of Christ. That, that because of our gathering together, that because of the, the life that you've given us, that you would unite us with all of the saints and all the followers of Christ that have, have gone before us. That you would strengthen us for our, our journey. That we would be able to remain faithful in hope 
and in love until you gather your whole church into the glory of your kingdom. Amen.